Hey, Sarasota, it's Bob. So it's been a wonderful grind over the past 18 months. We've had some fabulous guests. We've produced over 150 episodes. and We've had over 10,000 listens from you wonderful folks in the greater Sarasota area. It's been a lot of fun, but also it's been a lot of work. And so we've decided to take a little bit of a break until this fall. When you check out other podcasts, you're going to see that most put out a new episode only once a week. We put out two, so of course that means there's twice the work. A lot of show notes, scheduling, guests, editing, etc., etc., etc. So we've decided to take a little break for the rest of the summer and we will resume this fall. And we'll let you know. But before I sign off, can you do me a little favor? Reach out to us via Facebook, Instagram, or LinkedIn. Drop us a little note. I'd like to know more about what you want to hear when we resume in the next couple of weeks. That'd be a big help because without you, dear listener, we would not exist. As always, thank you for tuning in. Have a wonderful summer, and we'll be back soon where you can listen, learn, and connect. Good morning, Sarasota. This is the Sarasota Stories Podcast. The case for community banks plus... Is our banking system really safe? One of the anchors of any community is, of course, the community bank. With so much consolidation in the financial industry, it's hard to know who's who anymore. 1-800 numbers are commonplace, but one local banker doesn't use them since he's fully committed to making the banking relationship truly personal. Hi, I'm your host, Bob Williams, and I'm very pleased to welcome Dennis Murphy, President and CEO of Golfside Bank. In this episode, you'll learn one thing most people don't know about Dennis, how starting a bank is different from starting other businesses, why all business owners should have a board of directors, what really happened to two California banks that recently failed, why Dennis believes our banking system is safe and sound, and much, much more. Thank you for stopping by today, as it is my hope you will listen, learn, and connect. Dennis Murphy, President and CEO of Golfside Bank in Sarasota. Welcome to Sarasota Stories Podcast. Thank you, Bob. Glad to be with you. Well, it's a pleasure to have you on. I don't think I've had any other folks from the finance industry uh, on the podcast, so I'm interested in having you on. Plus, there's been a lot of news about the banking system recently, so it's going to be really great to get somebody on here who can talk about that, talk about community banking, about what it's like to start a bank. Uh, We're even going to get into stuff like the value of a board of directors and maybe how even small businesses can use board of directors. But before we get into all that, I'm going to ask you my favorite question, which is what is one thing that most people don't know about Dennis Murphy? Well, Bob, most most folks don't know that I'm actually 50% Cuban uh, on my mother's side. Um, Unfortunately, when I was little, she passed away in in uh, an accident. Um, so I just grew up with my father, who's the Murphy. He's the Irish German one, and and so I never learned Spanish. And uh, but I had a, a wonderful family in in, uh, in Tampa, kind of a West Tampa neighborhood, and they called me the Cuban cracker because I was uh, <laughs> couldn't speak Spanish, but um, but was there in Cuban. And so I had a wonderful um, childhood, being able to spend time with them. There was literally a four block radius uh, there in Tampa where there was like eight different houses that were my my family. So. When I would go uh, visit my grandmother, you know, her sister was a block over across from her sister was their first cousin and her sister was across the street. Uh, My godmother was another block over. So 
Um, it was always great growing up in a Hispanic family. They spoiled me. They uh, introduced me to some wonder, wonderful cuisine. Um, and so it was neat to have that experience growing up. And most, most folks don't know that about me uh, being the, the typical Murphy Irish German. <laughs> oh, my uh, goodness. Yeah, that, that, that is interesting. And it's funny because uh, I, I actually spent a lot of money trying to teach my kids to speak Spanish because I thought it was so important uh going forward because uh just you could just see the melding of the different cultures so i used to send them to panama and they go to school down there and learn spanish so shame on you for not learning spanish well you know what <laughs> it's, so it's funny by my my oldest daughter who's 14 is is actually named after my mother and she has taken it upon herself to make up for my error <laughs> and she is fluent <laughs> she is really really uh she's fluent she's leaned right into her hispanic uh heritage and, and quickly learn Spanish and can, and can speak it, like I said, fluently. So at least I've got that. So we, we've talked about at some point, hopefully as a family, we'll be able to uh, take a trip to Spain and she can be our, uh, our tour guide. She can be your guide. That's great. That's great. Well, let's get into banking. You started Gulfside Bank about four, four and a half years ago. And something I've always been curious about is, is starting a bank just like starting any other business or what's different about it? Well, it is like starting a business in, in some ways, but it's a lot more tedious, I would say. Um, there's a very thorough regulatory process you have to go through. So where it's like, well, I'll start with where it's similar. So we actually put a business plan together. And I would tell you that that if you're uh, considering putting a business together or most people that have, hopefully have at least considered putting a business plan together or or maybe, you know, done one along the way. Um so we did. We had a formal business plan. We figured out exactly what kind of bank we wanted to be, where we were going to do it, what products and services we were going to offer. So that piece was very much like uh, what a lot of, of folks go through. The part that wasn't was <laughs> all the regulatory, uh, you know, hoop jumping and scrutiny that you go through. Um, as a bank, you you file a formal application both with the state uh, office of financial regulation and with the FDIC. At least our bank. Um, which is a state charter bank had to go that direction. There's others that go through the OCC, which is a national charter along with the FDIC. But um, so, so we in fact took a road trip. Um, my, my director group and I uh, went up to Tallahassee to meet with the powers that be to tell them, Hey, we're interested in um, uh, starting this bank. We think there's a need. We kind of um, started to get them, you know, knowing that we were going to make um, application and we ultimately made application both with the OFR in Tallahassee and uh, with the FDIC. And then you go through a litany of additional follow-up questions with regards to um, your business plan, your, your financial projections and your budget, your, I mean, anything from your, you know, your insurances and your locations and your uh, personnel hiring, to, you know, it, it, you know, your, your incentive plans. It was interesting. Um, and that takes that that's a process that takes a while. And so that's where it's different than most um, most businesses. I mean, we still had to, you know, file for our incorporated status. We still had to you know, do a lot of the things that regular businesses do. But we were at the mercy of going through a process and a, and a uh, approval process that's much longer than uh, than what a traditional business would deal sure. with. So, Starting a bank usually takes, when you think about the fact that you're coming up with a business plan, putting a board of directors together, um, starting your regulatory approval process. Then once you get a, a certain way through the regulatory approval process, you have to raise the capital, right? And that's another different thing than, uh, right. well, you know, some folks, I mean, you have to have the capital to start a business, so that's not all that different. 
Um, but that process is is elongated compared to uh, to, to most businesses. So, so you have a 20 plus history in the banking industry and you've seen a lot of different departments and different areas of the industry. When you saw this gap in the local market, was it something that you saw or was it you and some advisors that said, hey, you know, we really need a community bank that's not only based here, but everybody lives here. I mean, what, what was the gap that you saw in the market where you said, we really need to start this thing? Well, that's exactly right. We saw a gap. Um, this market between Sarasota Bradenton has historically, and most you know, ten-year segments you can look at, had a number of, of community banks. You know, between anywhere from the low side of five to you know upwards of you know ten to fifteen in high points, and and that has changed a lot for a variety of reasons. But we felt that the market still um, needed, and and that a lot of the business owners and and uh, folks that live here appreciated their prior relationships that they had with community banks, um, being that I was with one for, you know, 10 years prior to this, um, I knew a number of my old clients. I knew a number of clients from, uh, some of the bank, uh, the banks that my directors, you know, had past experiences with were, were really, um, uh, clamoring to have that kind of, uh, banking relationship again. So we knew the need was there and that really led us to believing in, you know, in the, uh, the effort. I find that fascinating because, I mean, connection and relationships are everything today. And in some regards with technology and AI and everything, a lot of that's being diminished. I mean, we can't connect more via technology, but it's really the personal side of things. I think that a lot of people really yearn for. Was there anything specific that you saw that in how you interact, not only with the public, but maybe investors, folks that are looking for financing for bigger projects, I guess would be kind of on the commercial side? Well, I mean, I think you hit the, the nail on the head with, with technology being important, but relationships mattering. Um, we really believe in the power of, of relationships and of local relationships and longevity of those relationships. Many of the clients that I have and that my, my staff uh, folks have had uh, that have gone over generations. And so, you know, or decades, excuse me, not generations, I guess in yeah. some cases, generations, but decades. And, um, you know, we've been able to help folks through various, you know, stages of their businesses, of their personal life. And, and you know, those um, relationships over time have, have deepened. But we also um, really value and, and recognize the importance of technology. And in fact, one of the reasons why I think community banks can compete in today uh, today's market. Um, you know, when we open this bank, we recognize that there are far less community banks than there used to be. So we're not just competing with community banks; we're competing with regionals and nationals in a lot of cases. And what we needed in order to be uh, competitive there were not only excellent people and, and great uh, products, but we needed wonderful technology and technology that would stand up and, and be commiserate with those in the, in the competitive space. So uh, we did that. And in fact, we're very proud of our technology. We think it's right up there with any of the other uh, regionals. And we always tell folks, you know, if we set you up properly with the products and, you know, the technology products and services we offer, you should be able to seamlessly bank with us from anywhere. Um, and that's really true, except for those that maybe have high cash handling needs, which is less and less these days. But I mean, I've got folks that are in completely different markets. I got a shareholder and a friend of mine who's got a business up in St. Petersburg. He banks ex exclusively with us. 
Everything's mm. electronic over your phone, right. your iPad or your computer. Um, and he really doesn't see any drop off in service or, or anything. But um, what happens and the reason why I think it's a, a game changer for community banks is we can't and don't have as many physical brick and mortar locations. Right. But the importance of those to, you know, the businesses and the consumers over the years have become less and less important as long as you can deploy that technology, uh, excuse me, as long as you can deploy that technology uh, effectively. Talk a little bit about economies of scale. Uh, if When you compare your business with, say, a Bank of America, of course, one of the largest banks in the United States, maybe the world, and, and I'm sure it is the world. What about economies of scales where you're able to compete with rates and uh, because you're, you're in the money business, you're in the money lending business. So somebody comes to you as compared to a, a Bank of America, and I, I realize this is a broad strokes question, but how can you compete with that? You can on the relationship side of things, but their ability, uh, you know, with interest rates or, or what they're going to charge you for a loan. Give our listeners a sense of, of what that looks like. You know, it's interesting. You bring up, you know, Bank of America, and I would tell you a lot of the the largest um, banks really don't they don't play or don't focus a lot in the space that we focus on. Community banks um, really are generally, um, you know, focused, at least our bank is focused in the small and mid-sized business arena. Um, you know, and when I say small and mid-sized, I mean, we can't, because of our legal lending limit, be the, you know, the bank for PGT yes. or for Sun Hydraulics. We don't have the legal lending limit uh, in order to, to uh, you know, be their relationship provider. Um, but most of the, I would tell you, a disproportionate amount of the loans made to Main Street, right, are made by community banks and not on, and not the nationals. And it's because of the expertise of our personnel. It's because of the fact that they're not really fishing in that pond very often. So when it comes to that piece, we don't um, we don't really run into the to the big guys all that much. We're more you know competing with the communities and the regional banks, and we can be very um, efficient uh, and, and cost effective for for clients and very competitive um, when when the opportunity makes the right sense for us. Where we really differentiate ourselves though is not necessarily always on price. I mean, we, right. we have to be competitive. It's a competitive market, but where we're um, uh, where we like to stand out is on looking at things holistically and designing and packaging things. We don't have boxes. There's no bureaucratic, you know, approval process. If something makes sense, we're able to step outside the box and figure out a way to get that done for the client, often in a time that they, in a way, maybe they hadn't thought about. And and so while we're still very competitive on, on rates and terms and things of that nature, I think we're a little bit um, of an easier process to go through for clients. And we're also able to really tailor something specific to meet their needs. Whereas a lot of times when you're dealing um, with the larger boxes due to those economies, they, they've got just a, a, you know, a box and they'll do more volume because it fits in that box and it's right. easy to say yes or no. Whereas we'll, we'll really dig in and, and figure out a way to get things done when it makes sense. Continue to peel back on that a little bit. Let, let's say that I'm an investor. Uh, I want to get into the commercial real estate space or I've been in there and I want to buy a strip mall and I need, you know, $2.3 million loan. How do you walk somebody through that process? And I, I know it's a longer process than what we could talk about here today, but, but what are just some basic steps that that person needs to know before they come in and talk with you all? Well, I think 
you know, one of the things you kind of hinted at, and I think it's a, it's a perfect, um, you know, thing to bring up is we really look at ourselves as, as kind of partners in a way we want to make sure that if we're lending into that property and, and our borrowers financing that property, that we're on the same page as to where the risk is and, uh, what we like about it and what we don't like about it. And we structure it and we, and we're on the same page with the, the client as to the positives and negatives about that particular property. Yep. Um, we work very closely with a lot of the local commercial real estate firms. Um, you know, a lot of the times those borrowers are starting with them. They're looking at properties that are represented by professional counsel there. And so we've got relationships with them to step in and give them an idea of, yeah, we, we agree with you. We think this is worth this. And, you know, we, we see this kind of as a potential structure. Um, but we're going to look at all kinds of different things about that property uh, and the dynamics of it. You were talking about an off or a retail type center. We're going to look at the various tenants. We're going to look at the lease terms. We're going to look at, you know, uh, where those lease terms are to market if they reset, you know, when they're when they're coming up and if they have options, all kinds of things that play into the potential, um, you know, uh, cash flow of that property and its ability to support support the debt that we're putting in place, because. Like I said, we feel like we're a, you know, a, a silent partner in that, you know, we, we expect to be paid the certain interest rate on it. They, they get the, sure. the rest and we want to make sure it works for both parties because we're definitely not in the, the, the real estate game. I tell you, if, if anybody saw, you know, and remembers back to the 08, 2009, 2010, when banks were having to foreclose on properties, um, that's not where we want to be. That's not where, where we need to spend our time and, and, you know, banks have historically not been very good at disposing of those assets in an efficient manner. So um, we want to stick to to helping people be successful and helping them buy those properties. And anything we can do to show them the analysis and how we look at it um, and be on the same page, I think, furthers the opportunity to be successful for both parties. Should, should somebody come to you before they actually have a deal lined up or they say, look, th- this is like kind of a coaching deal or whatnot, where they come in, they say, look, I'm and I know these are relationships that are built over years. So they come to you and they say, this is what we're looking at. Here's the basic uh, portfolio, the basic format here. Should they come to you at that point or at what point should somebody come to you? Absolutely. I, I think the earlier you can engage uh, a banker, and especially if you've got a relationship with that banker, the more we can tell you the nuances of what we think about that property or about the market in general, um, the more we can kind of say, hey, you might want to, as you're looking, consider this or consider that. Um, you know, and, and the commercial real estate guys do a great job of it as well. So it's not a, you have to start with a banker, but there's nothing wrong with starting with right. a banker. In fact, I would say, Hey, you know, getting their perspective and starting with them and, and, and whatnot, they can give you an idea of some potential terms. And that way, when you're modeling out what you think your, you know, cash on cash return is going to be or something like that, um, you've got an idea of the approximate financing terms. So you can put it into that, into that model and figure out exactly what you're willing to offer. Um, so when it comes to like an investment commercial real estate or even in, uh, investment real residential, yeah, I think that's a very important um, thing. And then, you know, obviously, if you're a business owner, and you're just looking to grow your business. We've got tons of ideas there as well. Yeah. What, what's the range of deal size that you like to do between what and what? So our legal lending limit's about six and a half million. And, and that means we can do six and a half million to, on any one project or combined to any one borrower or related entity. I would tell you the largest deal we've done is probably about eight and a half and we would participate a little smaller portion of it out. Um, but you know, really our sweet spot is anywhere from, 
you know, I, I would tell you, uh, you know, a million to, you know, three and a half million is kind of that sweet spot. As it gets a little bit larger, closer to four, five, six, um, we're just making sure that, that the, um, the struggle, we're going to tighten down. We should make sure everything works uh, that much better than you might on the, on the smaller ones, just to make sure, um, as, as the, you know, loan size goes up, you just want to make sure your potential loss given default, um, you know, is, is kept in check. Interesting. That's interesting. What, so you've been at Golfside now for, you started Golfside four and a half years ago. What have you been pleasantly surprised about? I'd say our growth. Um, I think we've really grown faster than we originally projected. Um, today, four and a half years in, we're about um, 280 million in total assets. Um, my prior bank, you know, we, we were we were there, you know, goodness, probably about the eighth or ninth year. So, you know, we've we've really had um, uh, we've benefited from, I would tell you, a very very active uh, shareholder and, and shareholder base and some great uh, employees that we brought in that were able to transition relationships over. Um, we also had a couple unique situations that I think spurred our growth. So early on, um, that active shareholder and director group, everybody's bringing their business kind of catapulted us right out of the, the starting gates. And then as you start, is that that momentum slows a little bit because some of that, you know, low hanging fruit, if you will, uh, starts to, to kind of already be banking with you. We had, and we didn't know it was going to happen this way, but we had, um, the pandemic, uh, you know, that came along and, yep. and the PPP um, program that stemmed from that, we were able to quickly get our arms around the PPP lending process. And a number of, uh, of our referral sources heard about it and started referring folks to us and, and they opened relationships. And we really uh, didn't know it at the time, but we were able to transition a real, you know, uh, probably, you know, goodness, a, a year and a half worth of, of commercial relationships. And a very short period of time uh, due to that PPP effort. And we've been able to hold on to those and really cement those relationships. They were happy for us being there for them when they needed us. And, and they, you know, reciprocated by bringing their relationships to us. So that was a, another um, uh, kind of growth opportunity, if you will. And then over the last year or two, I've been able to really acquire um, uh, some, some really talented bankers who further um, been able to, you know, bring some of their prior relationships to us. So um, we've really grown. And I think it's a testament to not only the, the need and the desire uh, for folks to be with a community bank, but it kind of gives um, credence to our effort. Um, you know, it kind of backs up when we were raising that money in 2018. And some people were like, well, you know, there's less and less community banks. What, why, why would you want to do a community bank? I think this has shown that, that, the market believes in uh, the value of community banks and, and that the clients um, have really validated that. You know, um, Dennis, I couldn't agree more. When you look at uh, migration patterns, a lot of folks are leaving the bigger cities right now. Of course, we've seen all the out-of-state license plates of folks coming to Florida. And I think the psychology is that a lot of folks want to get smaller. They want to get more intimate. They want to find their groups. Uh, I've always felt Sarasota is a, a great town to get plugged into, but I think they want to find their groups and they want to have real relationships. So it's, it's interesting that you saw that where so many other people didn't. Uh, again, I'll talk about Bank of America. They've closed two. Um, they've cl closed two of their locations near where I live. And so they've consolidated 
their um, their business. So I think it's interesting how you've really you really saw that when no one else did. Yeah, it's it's interesting. I would tell you we um, we, we just have we have you know we have all the products and services uh, of the big banks for the most part. Yep. I mean, we don't have a investment you know banking trading division or something like that, but all the standard products and services that that business and, and consumers are looking for, we have. We have the technology. Um, but you're right. We have the people that are that are highly trained, um, very experienced bankers. So when you walk in and you're talking to, you know, one of our folks, whether it be in the retail side or one of our commercial lenders, they're they're, you know, uh, very tenured bankers that understand and know what they're doing. And and then we empower them to be able to make decisions to really, um, you know, help clients in a, in, in, without all the red tape. And, and so um, and we feel there's value there. We feel there's value in people knowing their banker and, and we try to you know our adage is we, we try to make every client feel like they're our only client yeah you know so while we have all those products and services there are a few things that the big banks have that we don't have we do not have 800 numbers there's no call centers <laughs> um you know our clients my, my cell phone is on my business card um you know that's that's good in a lot of ways it's bad sometimes i'm but, sure uh, but the bottom line is we want to be there for our clients and um um, there's no, there's no task too big or too small for any of our folks. They're very passionate about, uh, the client experience and making sure that, um, you know, that we get them where they want to go. Cause truth be told, I mean, community banks are, are very much the, the better our clients do, the better we do, the better yep. the community does, the better we do. So, right. um, we're, we're all about trying to support our clients in the community and, and, um, really feel at least in that component, it's a very altruistic, uh, type of business model. Well, it's not been all sunshine and roses. Couldn't be over the last four and a half years, particularly with the regulatory burdens that you deal with. You got employee issues. You got you have all the headaches of any entrepreneur has. So, was there ever a time over the last, you know, four years where you're you're sitting there with your cup of coffee in your hand at home and you're looking at the coffee, saying, "What have I got myself into?" <laughs> Oh, sure. Yeah. I mean, every business owner has probably had a few sleepless nights here and there. And, and I'm, uh, I'm definitely not, uh, I'm no different than everyone else there. Um, yeah. I mean, the regulatory environment is, 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 is always changing. I mean, I'm, I'm probably, uh, different than a lot of bankers. And I'm not going to sit here and say that all oh, the regular, you know, regulations are terrible. You know, I, I understand there needs to be regulations. You know, there needs to be things that, that protect and monitor the risk and protect the banking system. Um, what I get frustrated with sometimes is I feel we spend way too much time creating solutions for problems, you know, uh, for problems that don't exist. And, and I'd rather us address the, the, the real issues that happen. But, um, you know, I think there's that probably crosses over to a lot of other industries as well. You know, you recently did a podcast with Michael Corley, the Corley Group, and I had Michael on back in episode 84, and he's very, very strong in the nonprofit uh, space here. You talked about the nonprofit, the value of serving on nonprofit boards, but talk about the board that you have, the board of directors that you have for the bank. Uh, You have some, some very highly qualified people there that I know 
But talk to the, I guess, the small business owner, the value of a board and what they bring, any specifics that you can share of how they help you when, again, you walk into the office and you've, you've been staring at your coffee cup saying, well, what, you know, what have I got myself into? But what, what does the board do for you, you know, as a bank owner? Um, you know, how do they get you through the rough parts? That's a great question. Um, first off, I'm, I'm extremely proud of our board. It really is a, a who's who of the local Sarasota business community, and each one is very committed and invested in this area. Um, and the other great thing about our group is there's really a, a good cross section of different industry experience, which is important because I know banking and I know, you know, balance sheets and income statements and lending and, and all the things that I deal with. Um, but they bring really a unique perspective to each meeting because they, they, they bring their own industry, you know, experience, whether it's, you know, we've got a couple of attorneys, we've got, you know, a former marketing uh, business owner, we've got a commercial construction executive, we've got, you know, a doctor, an auto executive, a, you know, manufacturing, real estate, you know, we've, we've really got a great group, uh, philanthropic, uh, uh, you know, executive. So uh, it's interesting to get the perspective from from each of them with regards to an issue that I may, you know, feel like I've got a, a good handle on. But when you kind of sit back and you listen to them, they're very smart and they may have a perspective that you hadn't considered. And um, sometimes that may make you make a slight course correction in what you're what you're thinking about a particular topic. So that's one thing. And, and as it relates to the importance to businesses, I would tell you it, it can be critical. And and I think, you know, all business owners, small, midsize should uh, have a, uh, a pseudo board of directors, maybe not a technical board of directors, but if you've got a good, you know, banker, if you've got a good CPA, if you've got a good lawyer, um, you know, and, and you've got kind of a, a sounding board, if you will, that can be invaluable um, because you, you're usually, you know, if you're successful in business, you're an expert in your field, but you may not necessarily know, you know, the implications of a decision you're going to make financially. So that's where your CPA and your, your, your banker can kind of give you some insight or maybe legally where your attorney or, or maybe you have, you know, a, uh, a friend that, that is in a similar business than you that you don't compete with that you want to you know share best practices with. I think it's invaluable to uh, search for expertise from, from folks that have maybe a different perspective than you so that you can, Kind of work that into your decision making uh, process. You know, years ago, Michael Gerber wrote the book E Myth, which is the entrepreneurial myth, which is a lot of us, including myself, are, you know, we're plumbers, we're, we're specialists in a given area. And I think you just touched upon it the value of having that outside voice. You know, plans fail for lack of counsel, but with many advisors, they succeed, I guess, is the old proverb. But um, I just wanted to put that piece in there because I just I couldn't agree more. I think it's vital for people to have that outside voice that can uh, lead you through some difficult times. I want I want to transition right now to uh, kind of the banking industry as a whole. Uh, you have SVB Bank, which is Silicon Valley Bank, and also Signature Bank in California. These banks recently went under. And can you talk about that a little bit? And can you also talk about the banking system? Is it sound? Is it, you know, should we be concerned? Talk about that if you would, Dennis. I will. Yeah. And, and I'll start with the, is the banking system sound? And, and I would tell you a resounding yes. Um, 
you know, you had some some very specific and highly isolated incidences there that that I think each were, were different but similar. When you think about Silicon Valley Bank, but really the similarities are that they both had extreme, you know, concentrations to high risk business lines. They had very connected uh, depositors within those business lines. And if you think about first Silicon Valley Bank, they were a heavy, heavy, heavy tech bank. And a lot of their um, uh, clients were, were businesses in the tech space that had either consulting relationships or had you know ownership positions from venture capital firms that were working with them. And so if you think about kind of what happened in the tech space and in the startup space over the last handful of years, Silicon Valley Bank had grown its balance sheet and its deposit base significantly uh, over the last few years in the tech space with a lot of the stimulus that was pushed into the system. Well, as people have seen probably in the last nine to 12 months, also a lot of the, those, those tech companies you know, are kind of burning through that, that stimulus, if you will, um, you know, and there are different parts of their life cycle, but a lot of them were, were kind of losing money and or laying off folks. And so naturally they're drawing down on those deposits over the last nine months, whereas a lot of banks kind of were holding on to their deposits or growing. Silicon Valley Bank was already, um, uh, you know, their deposit base was, was slowly drying up. But when they had a ton of it, they had put themselves into uh, some assets that were harder to get out of. And I'll come back to that in a minute. But if you think about it, so number one, their deposit base is is going down. Um, one of the next line items of defense on a liquidity standpoint for banks, and it, and it depends on the, on the market environment, uh, is either your bond portfolio or in times where like Silicon Valley Bank, uh, your bond portfolio has losses in it. You don't want to go to that for a liquidity source. The next thing you'd go to is your your secured borrowings. So you you have borrowing lines with you know uh, federal home loan banks, sometimes the Fed, different different setups that are secured by sometimes loans, uh, sometimes your bond portfolio, things of that nature. So as as the Silicon Valley Bank depositors were you know kind of drawing down and they were getting less and less cash and less and less liquid, they went to and really exhausted their secured borrowing lines. Mm. And so they're remember they're a publicly traded institution. So as they're coming out with their call reports and and the street is seeing this. The next thing, and what was the really the yellow flag to the industry and to the venture capital firms and whatnot, was they 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 really kind of blew out of their bond portfolio and took a big loss. So that's kind of a, a yellow sign that the VCs are like, whoa, you know, that that shows some some desperation from a liquidity standpoint. And right about the same time, and this was the red flag, they came out and, and announced a uh, a big capital raise in a, in a manner that was highly dilutive. So it was a a discount to to book value, and that showed further, you know, uh, distress. It meant the so, current shareholders were were going to be diluted. Is that's what you're saying, right? Correct. Yeah, I mean, they were trying trying to raise two and a half billion dollars, and I want to say sixty percent of book. So, you know, it was a highly dilutive, huge capital raise in order to shore up the balance sheet. And the venture capital firms, you know, are like, whoa, you know. And so they start calling all their clients, sure. um, you know, and saying, look, you know, the yellow sign was already out with the bond portfolio. This is a red sign. You got to get your money out. And they had so many contacts that were similarly connected. That was there was just a huge run on the bank in one night. That's pretty rare to have a, um, you know, a sequence of events like that. But B, such an interconnected and, and correlated deposit base. Um, so that was that was one. The similarity but difference with Signature is very is very interesting. So Signature 
um, had grown their bank about 80% in the prior few years, tied primarily to a handful of large um, uh, stable coin providers, Circle oh, being wow. large. Wow. And so what, what's got in these stable coins, remember the, the, the value is backed by, you know, some currency. And so what happened is as the value of those, those coins due to what was happening on the other coast with signature or uh, with Silicon Valley was the, you know, was going down, uh, all the folks that were holding, you know, they were owners of the cryptocurrency started making a run for the deposits. And so it was a similar situation. It's interesting where it's different from the bank failures of, you know, the 2007, 8, 9 period that were driven by poor loan and asset quality and those kind of things. This was more a crisis of confidence, a liquidity issue. Um, and I think it was exacerbated by both of those banks, not only having you know, concentrated positions to high risk business lines with very correlated depositors, but also high percentages of uninsured to total deposits. Um, you know, and, and, you know, and really high upside down bond positions. There were a number of things, um, that were kind of out of whack there. And so, um, I think, you know, there was definitely some risk management and oversight that was not, um, not done very well. I mean, I don't, I don't know how, you know, I haven't looked into the, the regulatory reports or anything right. from those banks, but I can tell you, I know our regulators, uh, are really always looking at concentrations and, and wouldn't have allowed us to have any kind of, concentrated positions like that, nor do we, but, um, but now going, back, going back to the beginning of your question, please. Is, yeah. You know, the very healthy banking system. I think for the most part, you don't have banks that have systemic kind of issues or houses of cards built into their business model. And I think the FDIC insurance piece is, is very important. But one thing most folks don't know is for, since the advent of, of the FDIC in 1932, not a single depositor, of any bank that's failed with the deposit of any size has, has taken a loss. Uh, as long as it was in an FDIC insured bank, regardless of the size, what happens every time is the FDIC steps in and they broker the sale of the failed bank's assets to a healthy bank. And they, they usually use a loss share or something like that to limit the risk to the healthy bank that's taking on the, the assets. And then when the dust settles and they figure out what the true loss is, they assess the remaining banks on a pro rata basis based upon their size, a special assessment. Think of it like a, a special, like a condo association assessment in order to right size the fund and make up for the loss. So, you know, while I don't want to downplay folks, um, uh, you know, the importance of, of FDIC insurance and Gulfside's got ways to spread FDIC insurance to virtually unlimited amounts of dollars for folks, um, you know, from a de facto standpoint, at least historically, there hasn't been any real um, uh, risk there because the FDIC steps in and protects the deposit. Right. Now, the shareholders, you know, they're they're out of luck usually. Um, and, and when you buy shares in a bank, you take that risk. But um, the, the, the health overall of the system is extremely strong. We have the most well-capitalized, well-regulated, um, you know, banking system in, in the world. And, and I think folks should feel very comfortable in that. And in fact, if you don't believe me, Warren Buffett just came out last night with a article that I saw on, uh, it was on yahoo.com. He basically says the same thing. So uh, if you don't believe it from me, take it from the Oracle of Omaha. <laughs> well, that, that's certainly reassuring for a lot of us. And, and maybe you'll be the Oracle of Sarasota <laughs> <laughs> as your career progresses. Well, I am curious because you have the one location downtown. 
You have a second loan processing location out Lakewood Ranch, and you're opening up a third location. Is that correct? That's correct, Bob. Yeah, we uh, we should have our second full service office opening opening up about this time next year. Um, it's going to be kind of in the so just off of Fruitville, east of the east of the interstate. And what's the if you kind of think of it as a quadrant there, it'd be like the south uh, eastern quadrant there of I seventy five and Fruitville. Um, many people know where the new development is, where Cooper's Hawk and the Clive Daniel furniture and that new kind of area is. Sure. We're going to be right across the street on the south side there of Fruitville, kind of in between the interstate and the uh, library. There's a, a piece of property that's being developed there that will have, oh, goodness, I want to say like 1,500 apartments. There's a. Uh, um, it's incredible. It's crazy. Yeah. yeah they're going to have a, a Kennedy White Orthopedic Center there. There's going to be a number of places, and we'll be right up against the road, uh, very visible right there on Fruitville. Well, that's great. Well, Michael, I'm going to, my last question is just simply, you know, where are you taking Gulfside Bank? You know, we, we, uh, we've all kind of committed to, we just want to build the best darn community bank we can and, uh, and take great care of our clients. And, and that's really it. I mean, from day to day, our plan is to continue to grow and to continue to serve the needs of, of, of our clients in the community. And, um, uh, I think that's as far as we've thought out about it. Well, that's great. Well, that's a good place to uh, sign off there. Dennis, I appreciate you being on the Sarasota Stories podcast. And uh, I always appreciate our listeners tuning in. But uh, thank you so very much, particularly talking about the banking system, because I know a lot of folks are asking about this. They're curious about that. And somebody who's has as much experience as you have, I'm sure, feel a whole lot better about that. So we appreciate you being on the show. Bob, I appreciate you having me. You betcha. All right. onward. Thank you, everybody. Onward and upward. Hello, dear listeners. This is Bob again. Thank you so much for stopping by. I sure hope you enjoy listening to our interviews as much as we do providing them. If so, would you do me a little favor? Go to sarasotastories.co and enter in your email. That way you'll get notifications of all upcoming episodes. Also, you can find us on Instagram, Facebook, and LinkedIn. And remember, no matter where you go, to listen, learn, and connect.